You are listening to episode 29 of the Lewis and Kyle show with Mike Lacey. Yeah, so it was like we, you know, the levees broke open and the water was flowing and we just went, you know, tournament after tournament just couldn't stop winning. And so that was obviously like an amazing feeling because we were working towards that for so long. And at the same time, I was kind of like, all right, what's next? Welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show, an interview podcast where we share tools for success in entrepreneurship, investing and health. Lewis, who do we have on the show today? Hey Kyle, in this episode we bring on Mike Lacey. Mike was a former competitive speech and debater both in the high school and collegiate level and then was a competitive speech and debate coach where he coached a middle school public forum team to win the national championship among many other tournaments. But what we really had him on to talk about was how he transitioned from that career to becoming a real estate agent and investor in his late 20s. He covers the decision you should think about if you should get your license, if you should work with an agent, what kind of agent you should work with, as well as considerations for your first deal as a potential real estate investor and what types of things you should be looking for to make the right decision. Really interesting conversation, really beneficial for a beginner interested in learning about real estate, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. And with that, we're going to cut right to it. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Of course. So Mike is actually a real estate agent currently in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where we met. I went I went to Atlanta for a little weekend vacation and then went to a, a farmer's market. And Mike was there representing Keller Williams with a couple of his coworkers. And I approached him and we really hit it off having a conversation about real estate, what I want to do with my career, some of my plans for the university and a real estate fund that Lewis and I are trying to build there. And we really just hit it off. So, you know, Lewis and I had a conversation with him and we decided to make this podcast. I, I didn't know that whole story. I thought you had just been like in line waiting for strawberries and you just started talking them up and went to like real estate life story within 15 seconds. So I'm a little disappointed that it was actually at <laughs> like real estate tabling and you could tell, I kind of thought it just happened. Like you're sitting next to each other on an airplane and all of a sudden it came up, but I'll, I'm all right with that. It was a little bit more formal than I had originally thought. But exactly like Kyle said, Kyle and I are considering putting in some research for doing some real estate deals to the university and potentially down the line doing some ourselves. And you've recently been involved in a deal personally and helping others facilitate deals for themselves as an agent. So we figured you'd be a great person to talk about with what's involved in those things and the lessons learned and the mistakes to avoid. But before we totally dive into the real estate stuff, you and I have in common that we both did speech and debate very uh, competitively for a long period of time. I think you've got me beat by a number of years, but could you tell us a little bit about what kind of debate you did what your involvement was with it and how long you were involved? Sure. So I did policy debate first at Chattahoochee High School, which is in Georgia. And then, for, you know, during undergrad at UGA, I did it for four years there as well. And then also was a debate coach where I taught public forum, which is a slightly different style. How long did you coach after college? Uh, about seven years. I graduated in 2012 and did it until I became a real estate agent at the end of 2019. Wow. What did you like so much about debate that made you stay involved for so long? Was it working with the students or you know, the competitive aspect of it? I would say first and foremost, the competitive aspect. I've always had an affinity for games. Like it was mm -hmm. chess at a very young age and then it was soccer and then it was debate from then on. I've always been sort of strategically inclined and I just think debate is like one of the best strategy games. Oh, absolutely. And it has a lot of cool byproducts too. Like, you know, there's a byproduct of truth finding and research and fact seeking and oratory skills. So that, that stuff's cool too, but it's just like a really high level game at its core. When you say you're coaching, like for me, I, I've never done debate. So what does that mean? Basically, you know how like, what was it? Bobby Knight throws the chair across the basketball court. It's just a oh. lot of that. No, get all riled <laughs> up. No, I'm just kidding. It, it's a lot of just like, you know, teaching students about the content that you're going over. So teaching them topics, how to research, stuff like that but also just the activity of debate. So their speaking skills, their delivery, um, appealing to you know the judge, stuff like that. Why did you coach public forum instead of policy since that's what you competed in? Question. Yeah, so public forum is a little bit newer, is a little bit more of like an up and coming mm -hmm. activity. I think there was a lot less people that did it when I was actually debating. Now it's overtaken policy yep. in terms of its popularity. But the big reason for us, we actually started by teaching policy debate. But the students we were working with were a little bit younger. They're like middle school, some even elementary. And policy, I would say, is like the most advanced or complicated form of debate. And it wasn't really connecting with that age demographic. And so we were like, let's try out this public forum thing. It's very similar, kind of just simplified. And that was just a way better fit. Okay. This is bringing back all sorts of debate memories for me, the difference between the, the formats and 
and all of that. Did you also work with some of the summer camps or was it a private coaching? Was it through a school? So I did RA at a few of those camps when I was like mm-hmm. in college, just as like a summer gig. I was like a counselor basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you no, know, once I was actually working full time, we would run our own camps locally uh, and stuff like that. Gotcha. I actually want to go back for a second to your career because I know you went to the NDT, what, four times and then mm-hmm. first rounded three of those times. Could you mm-hmm. explain what it means to first round? Because I think a lot of people who aren't in debate don't understand the significance of three first round appearances. Sure. So the NDT is sort of like the pinnacle of college debate. It's like your March Madness, you know, your end of the year national championship. Everyone wants to win it. And the way the qualification process works is at the, you know, it's around like, I think mid-February or early March where they, there's a voting process where a district rep for, I think it's 11 or nine or 13 different districts, they all rank teams that apply based on your resume, based on how you did at certain tournaments and stuff like that. And then the top 16 teams get what's called a first round bid. So those are like the top 16 teams in the country. They've automatically qualified. They have a guaranteed spot. It would be kind of like, you know, getting a high seed going into March Madness. What was your like philosophy and strategy as a debater? That's a tough question. Were you like all about, were you very hacky and like, or were you like you had a few arguments that you were just unbeatable on and you always kind of went for those, which, what kind of style of a debater were you? Oh, I'm curious. What do you mean by like hacky? It's just, you know, reading, I, this is, I don't know how to contextualize this for people that aren't familiar with debate, but you know, you come up in the one and see and like the first negative constructive speech and you read like 25 different off case positions. And it's like, are, you're about time skews and like doing things that are inconvenient to like leverage the different time trade-offs in debate versus, you know, kind of always having like one counterplan, one disad politics and counterplan, like just a tr- very traditional strategy that you went really deep on, uh, kind of like a substance versus a technicality type dynamic. And I don't know if that's a high school thing or not, a high school way of classifying it because I've never competed at the college level. They're pretty similar. And I would say I was pretty hacky in both in, in that context. Okay. Um, I, for me, it was like whatever argument can get the job done. I wasn't tied to one particular position. position. I would make a whole array of arguments and um, kind of going back to the strategy thing, if I forwarded an argument, the other team didn't do a good job answering it. That's the argument that I'm going to focus on. So sure. I would say I was very flexible and very adaptable. I wasn't like tied to any one, you know, strategy or position. What was the most memorable topic? Because in policy, you know, you get one topic for the entire year. And I'm gauging that you had about seven or eight seasons of policy. So which topic of your eight years of debate stands out the most to you as like the most educational or the one you had the most fun with? For me, that was probably the surveillance or the oceans, honestly. And my fresh, freshman year in high school... A sophomore year, it was like development and exploration of the U.S. oceans or world oceans, getting my resolutions all messed up. So that's the one I remember best and like all the fun different arguments people ran, whether that was like solar desalinization or ocean thermal energy conversion or all like deep sea exploration. I just remember all sorts of fun conversations about those topics. But what was that for you? Yeah, I think I would say my first year in college, freshman year, we had a topic about agricultural subsidies. And I think somewhat similarly, maybe for you, some of the draw of that oceans topic is it was like sort of venturing into the unknown. It's like one of those things you've heard a little bit about, you know a little bit about it, but it just kind of opened your eyes to a whole new world diving into it. So that topic was really cool because you have this overlap of like microeconomics and like the the business of running a farm you have macroeconomics and how those things affect trade between different countries and like where crops can be grown and stuff you also have like a whole bunch of environmental topics about how we treat the land and how our food production system works so it was just like this cool overlap of all those different things that just created a lot of different talking points or you know ground for conversation at what point do you get the inkling that maybe it might be time for for a career change or something else Uh, That's a great question. I think for the last few years of coaching, I had started to feel like I was not being challenged and not really growing as much. And in my last season coaching, so, you know, when I, when I was coaching at this um, organization, we had started going to some national tournaments. At first it was just like teaching some kids locally. We weren't very competitive with it. It was just more of a business operation, but then we were like, okay, let's grow our program and compete more on the national stage. And so we had started doing well at tournaments, but never quite winning any of them. And then in my last season coaching, we won Georgetown, we won Harvard, we won the TOC, and then we won Nationals. So it was just like everything. In, in, in PF? In, in middle school PF, because that's what we focused on. Okay, wow. I mean, winning the TOC is a huge deal and all those other tournaments. Yeah, so it was like we, you know, the levees broke open and the water was flowing and we just went, you know, tournament after tournament just couldn't stop winning. And so that was obviously like an amazing feeling because we were working towards that for so long. 
And at the same time, I was kind of like, all right, what's next? So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's when I was really ready for a new challenge and to almost like hit the reset button and start over on something new. Well, that almost, I mean, uh, that really is crazy. Like going out on top. Why, why would you decide to, to leave a career when you finally found this level of success that is like unparalleled? I would imagine. I mean, I don't know who else wins all of the competitions they enter. So I think for me personally, I, I've become like almost obsessed with growth and just like challenging myself and unlocking potential. A quick side story just to drop this guys on you, uh, drop this on you guys. I used to weigh like 300 pounds not too long ago, three, four years ago. And then over the course of a year or two, I, I lost about a hundred pounds. And that really like ch changed my life more so than just my physical body, but like my whole outlook on life. I was like, wow, if I can do that, what else am I leaving on? The yeah. Table? And so then it was like, I had kind of gone through a similar like success story and debate. And I just wanted to keep taking on new challenges. So okay, why, didn't, well, why didn't you choose to graduate into like coaching a higher level of debate in terms of like, high school or college coaching at, cause I feel like that's a different level of challenge. Like, so you want, you know, you coach these middle schoolers to be the best in the country. Why didn't you go to, and even at other points in the career, like, okay, let's coach high schoolers. Let's coach college students. I think it was mostly the, the financials of it. Working for a private organization, my job was more lucrative than it might have been for like a high school or college a position, especially when you consider the hours I was working. Mm -hmm. So, you know, debate and challenges aside, it was just like a, a pretty sweet gig. And so it was more about like broader things than just, I kind of wanted to move beyond debate. Before we jump into the transition to real estate, I, I would like to learn more about this losing 100 pounds in, in two years, because that's a gigantic accomplishment that we didn't, we didn't go over. So uh, I guess, where'd you start and, and how'd you do it? And what are you currently doing to maintain your, your level of fitness? Well, I'll try not to like go too off topic because obviously I could talk forever about this. I'll, I'll like this is on topic. Debate and weight loss tips and real estate. Exactly. It's the title um, of the episode. You just named it. So I had always been a little bit overweight throughout most of my life, like as long as I can remember. And then it really ballooned during college. I don't know if you guys, did you guys experience like the freshman 15 or anything like that? Oh yeah. Went there for sure. I just recently lost my freshman 25. So... <laughs> yeah, or maybe for some people recently, it's been like the COVID-15. Yeah. And so, yeah, for various reasons, kind of let myself go, was very unhealthy, and then kind of stayed around there for a lot of my early 20s. At some point, again, like it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when things started to turn around. I had like tried to lose weight here and there, but never taken it super seriously. But at some point, it all just sort of came together. So some of the things that went into it, number one, as far as my diet goes, I was just tracking my calories. Like that was it. I didn't worry about like protein, fat. I didn't say like, oh, I'm never allowed to have donuts or anything like that. I just said, okay, you have a budget of 1600 calories per day, go. And as I stuck to that, that was like huge. If, if you're trying to lose weight and there's one thing that you do, just track your calories. Some other things that helped were I cut out all liquid calories and only drink water. Uh, I also did intermittent fasting where I would only eat between like 12 and eight, basically just skipping breakfast. And then for the fitness side, because I'm very competitive, I started creating these bets with my friends where we would be like, all right, we're betting 500 bucks. We have six months to train. We're going to do a mile run and pull-ups and a 400 meter swim, winner take all. And so we would start like, you know, putting money on the line and that would just like fuel me to eat right and work hard and work out. Uh, and that, that helped a lot too. Wow. I love that. First of all, thinking in bets, that's like a, a classic, like, putting pressure on yourself to to accomplish a goal is just so powerful like lewis and i have done that uh with different things together and it, it i mean it just produces results that you really can't even imagine but that's that's an amazing story and i think you know good for you i'm, I'm happy for you thank you i appreciate it what, what kind of bets have you guys done well lewis and i recently did the riding challenge for well for lewis lewis you want to explain it since it's your you brought out the one that hasn't gone well kyle <laughs> i know <laughs> it's uh i have technically lost this challenge kyle might be giving me some flexibility to defer finishing it but i wanted to write for well i'm trying to think 60 days no i think i wanted to write 60 out of 90 days i had like a 90 day period and i was going to write for at least 50 minutes a day for 60 of those 90 days the, the 90 days have passed and i did about 40 days but Kyle's let me make up the time just 
eventually. So that one's not been overly successful, but we kind of started the podcast and picked up other priorities. I've done a lot of like non-tract writing work. Um, Lewis sent me money and every time he would write, I, he would get some of his money back. For every 25 minutes of writing, I would get $10 back. Uh-huh. Or, That's no, $5, $5 back. He's just giving me a longer time frame to do it. Like you say, it's not that much of a success, but do you think if you hadn't created that system that you would have spent 40 days writing for almost an hour each of those days? I definitely have done more writing because of that challenge than I would have otherwise done, for sure. Exactly. That's awesome. And Um, we've done one with me where I had to wake up early just because waking up at 10 a.m. is like my favorite thing to do. So, so you know, if I don't wake up by seven, I send Lewis $10 and stuff like that just for a short period. We do that like often on a uh, single day basis where it's like tomorrow, if I'm not up by this and like have all this done by eight, 25, 30, 50 bucks. We do that one semi consistently. Mm -hmm. But one challenge we've both done right now is the 75 hard. We got like eight. Have you heard of that challenge? I have not. 75 hard. No, Kyle, we've pitched this on every podcast, I think. And like three episodes, our podcast is going to be about finishing it because we're going to finish it by that point. It's a 75 day fitness, mental toughness challenge where you do six things every day for, you have to get them perfect, do all six and do it 75 days consecutively. If you screw up one day, this includes weekends, this includes traveling, doesn't matter what you're doing, like make it work. You have to start back on day zero. It's like two workouts, 45 minutes each. One of them has to be outdoors. Drink a gallon of water, take a progress picture, come up with a diet and then follow it. No cheat meals. And then read 10 pages of nonfiction and don't drink any alcohol. And that's the 75 day challenge. And Kyle, I'm, this is my 69 or day 70 for me. So that's been a great challenge. And we've kind of held off on adding to it because we want to finish that before we add the next thing. But now that we're in like the home stretch, we're starting to think what's next and that might be buy your first rental property in under 90 days, or I don't know, or look at evaluate 10 real estate deals a day or 10 cold calls a day or fasting depending or fasting. That's like a mini challenge. We're going to do like a five day water fast, I think, but we got to figure out how to use a challenge to apply to our next goal. And the reason we have you on this podcast is because our next goals are real estate related and maybe it'll help us devise something that would be beneficial for our next goal. I love it, man. I love all of it. I love the challenge. I love just like the dedication to being better. I, I think like, like I said, I, I've become obsessed with that. I, I realized that, you know, cause when I was overweight and there was other things going on too, that were not ideal with like my social life, dating life. I mean, everything was just not going well. It all kind of either spirals down or spirals up, you know? And yeah. I realized that part of why I was depressed is because I just wasn't doing anything. I had all this like unlimited potential just sitting on the table doing nothing with it. And so now I feel like it's almost a dichotomy. I'm either growing or I'm just dying, which is like a little intense, but to some extent, it's like every day that goes by where I'm just not doing anything, I literally feel like my life is wasting away. So I love, you know, all the challenges and and your guys' just commitment to be better too. Totally dig it. I think I completely can relate to that sentiment of days where I'm not moving forward. I do feel like I'm moving backwards unless it's like a very clearly defined rest day where it's like I'm, and that's even like intentional, like last week I went out on a boat for a day and it's like, no, I, like nothing phone off, no wash. Just like, I literally sunburnt my wrist. Like there's a perfectly like peeling circle on my wrist because it's the first day I hadn't worn a watch. Like it was a very dedicated relaxation day. So I like that a lot. And I think challenges are a good way to get yourself to consistently put in progress, even on like off days. So it's, if we did something with cold calling, it's like, okay, well, as long as I do my 10 cold calls, the rest of today can be as lazy as possible and not be a failure. And that's the good thing about the 75 day challenge. Even if I accomplish no work on the podcast, no work on this business, no work on anything else. At the very least, I read 10 pages. I did two workouts. I drank a gallon of water. I ate healthy. I didn't drink. That's still a pretty I think, good day. Yeah. I think it's a good transition to real estate too because no market is ever uh, static. It's either going up or going down. And you know that's something that you want to bet on in real estate is, is what's going to go up and you don't want to buy what's going to go down. Yeah. So let's you, hear you tell the story of transitioning and what that was like from you from you know, wrapping up your debate career to how you got started and how you chose real estate as the next step, why you chose it, and then how you got started in it. Yeah, for sure. So I'd say the transition largely relates to my relationship with personal finance. At my job, I was a 1099 independent contractor, which means no benefits, no retirement account or anything like that. And so I think, you know, a lot of millennials have maybe experienced this where in your 20s, you're like, I've got a job, I'm paying my bills, I'm an adult, this is good. And then as I started to get like 25, 26, 27, 
I'm hearing people talk about home ownership and retirement and this kind of stuff. And while it never sounded sexy, I was like, I should probably learn a little bit more about that. So I started to read about like, you know, the FIRE community, financial independence, retire early, um, just learning a little bit more about retirement accounts. And so that was sort of the first step was I started to save for retirement. I just created a Vanguard account and an IRA within that. The next step was when I started to get exposed to real estate investing. So I have a close friend, Richie Choi, who, you know, we were going on a trip one day and we drove in the car together and, you know, had some time to pass. And so he popped on this other podcast, Bigger Pockets, that I'd never heard of and kind of introduced me to the idea of real estate investing. And I was like, okay, interesting, whatever. That seems like a lot to learn. I don't know, but the seed was planted. And so as time went on, a few days passed, I listened to another episode, a few weeks passed, listened to a little bit more. This is on your own that you decided to listen to it. Yeah. just started like throwing it on in the car. I had a fair amount of commuting because with the debate job, I was like going to different schools every day. Yeah. So I was just like, you know, listening to the podcast and and Atlanta traffic. Yep, exactly. And so that kind of dovetailed with people telling me like, you should buy a home. This is a good way to build wealth. You need to be planning for your financial future. And the one thing that I noticed consistently with their guests is there's so many people that come on that got started by buying a duplex and they live in one side and rent out the other. So you're not only getting the traditional benefits of home ownership, which is that real estate tends to appreciate. And as you're making your monthly payments, you're paying down the loan. So you're gaining equity in the house in two ways, right? The value is going up, the amount you owe is going down. But in addition to that, you're getting rental income too. So it's sort of this like trifecta of, you know, three different ways in which it's helping you build wealth. And I was like, that sounds really appealing. So many of these guests that have come on have done this. That's what I want. And so I kind of simultaneously decided I want to get involved in real estate investing and I also want to become a homeowner. And so the duplex was kind of like the perfect marriage of that. Well, there's more to that, right? I mean, you also started transitioning jobs, right? Yeah. So this is all 2019. So like, you know, early 2019 is when we had that really successful debate season. I'm winning all these tournaments in the summer. I buy this house. I feel like things are really coming along. Some other issues kind of came up with the job that aren't really worth going into. And I was like, all right, I want to do this real estate thing full time. I'm not really interested in like syndicating or wholesaling, which are ways to invest in real estate without putting up a lot of your own capital. And I didn't necessarily have that much capital beyond buying a duplex. So I was like, I want to do this full time, but it's kind of hard to invest the way I want to. So what if I became an agent? There's a lot of synergy there. I'm going to make connections that's going to help with both jobs. I'm going to learn more about real estate. I'm going to be able to save commissions on my own deals. I want to go all in on real estate. And so um, in the fall of 2019 is when I started going to school to get my license and then made the full transition uh, at the end of 2019. And you're you're with Keller Williams, right? So how did you make that decision? Yeah. So um, starting out as an agent, there's like a couple things you got to decide. One is like which brokerage you want to work with. And another is whether you want to join a team or be an individual agent. And long story short, I ended up getting connected with, so let me back up a sec. The reason I went with Keller Williams is because they have the best training. When you're a new agent, like it's tough. The course that you take and the test that you pass to become an agent has nothing to do with the business aspects of being an agent. It's like you study all the law stuff and all the rules and regulations you can't break. And then you have a license with no knowledge of how to market yourself, how to find clients. They don't even tell you how to fill out like basic real estate contracts. And so I was like, I need training. I don't care about commission splits. Like I know that there's going to be a ramp up period with this new career. I'm okay with that. I just want to go to the place that's going to give me the best training. So that's how I chose Keller Williams. I also chose to join this team called the Ben Kinney team because they are more geared towards investors and building wealth. Ben Kinney was actually on Bigger Pockets. He not only invests in real estate, he owns brokerages. They're the largest team nationwide. They're the biggest team at Keller Williams. And so I was like, this is just a perfect fit for what I'm trying to do and what I'm looking for. That sounds like a great team to join. Did you have to apply to join and like earn your way into that team or how did that work? I would say yes and no. I mean, when you're an agent, like especially for like joining a brokerage, most brokerages will take you on. I mean, mm-hmm. you pay them fees and you pay them part of your commission. It's sink or swim. Yeah, it's not much much skin off their back. With teams, it is a little bit different because if your team leader is taking you on, like they're basically committing to you that they're going to pour into you. They're going to teach you. They're going to mentor you. And they're only getting that back if you're productive, if you're like closing deals. So while it's not like the hardest interview in the world, there's not a, it's not like, oh, there's a hundred people interviewing for one position. Like the team can always grow. Mm -hmm. There is some element of like, yo, you got to be worth my time. 
mm-hmm. and you got to be, you know, beneficial to the team culture and the team in general. So you said that, you know, you don't learn much from the becoming a real estate agent education and that you chose Keller Williams for their training program. What would you say are some of the takeaways that you have gotten through that training program or, or has it lived up to, to what you were thinking in the beginning? So I would say that the me joining, not only joining a team, but joining this particular team superseded and made obsolete the rest of the training, which is nothing bad about Keller Williams training. It's very good. And they provide coaches and stuff, but those coaches you're probably meeting with like once a week, maybe you can hit them up with a couple questions and they won't get annoyed. But by joining a team, I mean, I get to be around my team leader from eight to five every day. And so I'm like soaking up knowledge, bouncing questions off of her. Like that's my training, you know? Yeah, that's great. The people aspect is really, is really the most important thing. So Ben Kenny, is he, is he in Atlanta or is he, how does that work? If he's an, is he a national broker? It's interesting. It's a great question because his structure is pretty unique. So teams are kind of like an emerging trend within real estate. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a great way to get started as a new agent. And it also provides leverage for the really high performing agents because they can like bring you on and involve you in their deals, but in a way that saves them time. uh, So they get to kind of grow their operation. But most teams are housed within one particular brokerage. Ben Kinney is in Bellingham, Washington, like about as far away from Atlanta as you could get outside Uh of like Alaska, although he does have a branch in Alaska too. So he got started out in Bellingham and has now expanded to have teams in, yeah, branches of his team in over 50 brokerages. So interesting. So Keller Williams, Ben Kinney operates in over 50 different markets. Yeah, and actually just as of recently, they are brokerage agnostic, meaning that there are branches of Ben Kinney that are not necessarily with Keller Williams. So I believe, and I I could be wrong, I believe this is the only team that transcends the boundary of the brokerage. Almost all of them are Keller Williams, but there's a few that aren't. Wow, interesting. Okay, well, let's back up just a little bit, uh, back to your real estate deal that you've done. For our listeners, can you just go over some of the things, like the considerations uh, that you have to, or the prerequisites that you have to have met in order to do a deal like that? Yeah. And you mean just in terms of like being able to get a mortgage and that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Sure. So it is going to vary like by lenders, you know, some lenders are going to be a little bit more strict than others, but to give people some rough estimates, you generally want your credit score to be like 620 or higher. Sometimes you can get a loan at like 580, but that's mm-hmm. usually like a big hang up for a lot of people. And then there's going to be like income requirements as well. So they're going to want, you know, proof of income, recent pay stubs and stuff like that to show that you're employed and can cover your mortgage payments. Those are kind of the big ones. You also are going to need some form of down payment, depending on the state and different loan programs available. There are some loans where you can purchase with no money down, but they're fairly rare. More frequently, you're going to need 5% down, or if you do what's called an FHA loan, you can get as low as like three and a half percent down. Most of those no money down things are, are a marketing scheme for real estate educators. They can be sometimes. Um, there actually is a really good program in Georgia called the Georgia Dream, where it's basically government subsidized. So it's a way to help first time home buyers and people that like have good credit and are pretty you know financially savvy. They just don't necessarily have the money for a down payment. So I think that's like a pretty good program. Oh, but there are also are some too that can be like a bait and switch or tied to uh, less attractive, you know, programs. Is that Georgia thing for uh, Georgia residents only? And you have to like have lived there for a certain amount of time or, or are there some other requirements there? I'm not sure if you have to have lived there for a certain amount of time. That's a good question. But I, I think there's other states that have similar programs too. I, I just wouldn't know. So for that person that is beginning in real estate and, and knows nothing about it, what would you recommend them do to educate themselves? Like what prescription would you give to somebody? Would it be podcasts or books or becoming a real estate agent? You know, how would you inform someone? Like if it was someone that was interested in investing or they just wanted to buy a home for the first time? Investing. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a big educational aspect to it. So I would say podcasts or books, like whatever, you know, suits your learning style better would be a great place to start. And then also just having like a good real estate agent in your corner. Like, a lot of them aren't very geared towards investors. You know, if you have like a stereotype of a realtor in your head, it's like a, you know, mid forties, blonde woman, something like that. Even that type of person, if they're knowledgeable and they're a good agent, they'll still be able to give you a lot of advice on being able to get a loan. What is home ownership like? What are some of the costs that go into it? So that does help. 
But yeah, I mean, at some point you got to dive into some of the books and podcasts and just kind of learn about how it works. What books or podcasts? Well, I mean, obviously got to read Bigger Pockets. Um, yeah. That was like where I got all of my knowledge pretty much. And even the, the few books I've read on real estate investing are Bigger Pockets books. So I would definitely rep that first and foremost. Even being a little bit more general, like I started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Have you guys read it? Yeah, like super common for people to start with that and just start thinking about passive income, owning assets versus liabilities. So I would say like, yeah, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a good one to start. I think Bigger Pockets has one that's just called like the basics of real estate investing. It's got a very like basic and generic title. That would be a good place to start. Uh, and then you can kind of go from there. I like that. Those are uh, some resources that I'm reading and looking into as we as we speak. I have uh, the Be the Burr audiobook. I've been listening to that past couple of weeks and that's a Bigger Pockets produced audiobook. And then I've been listening to some of the podcast episodes. So I'm catching up. I'm a guinea pig right now with some of that real estate stuff. And some of their other books are probably what I'll read next, but I definitely agree that those are great resources. And even rereading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I've listened to the audiobook and I've read it and I want to buy it again because it's just the right, it's the right mindset, the right way of approaching these things. It's the right attitudes and beliefs you have to have for being successful. And like, again, expanding your sense of what's possible for yourself through challenges and through other things. So I know we talked a little bit about your first deal and I don't think we're necessarily done with that, but after, you know, that duplex, what is it that you're looking for in your second deal? And what's kind of your attitude for what you're looking for in deals in general? So caveat would be that my number one focus right now is building up this new career, being my first year as an agent. That's like the number one thing. But to directly answer your question, uh, I really like two, three, and four plexes. So small multifamily units for a couple of reasons. Number one is cash flow. I, I like buying properties that are higher cash flow. I think cash flow is more predictable than appreciation. Just like hoping that a property is going to go up in value. I also think that cash flowing properties will also appreciate. So you get additional value there. I also think that the more cash flow you get, the faster you can acquire more properties in the future. It's kind of like a snowball effect where it just keeps building on itself. And the other cool thing about these compared to like uh, an apartment complex is if you live in them, you can get a better loan. You get what's called an owner occupant loan. So you would get a loan as if it's your actual residence because it is like I live in a duplex. So I get a better rate on that loan than if I were to buy an investment property. So my goal for the next one is to buy another duplex, uh, possibly a fourplex, but kind of scale up that way. Can you only own or occupy one property? So yes and no. When, when you get an owner-occupant loan, you are telling the lender that you intend to move in there within three months and live there for at least 12. So I just came up on the one year anniversary. Now, if I go buy another owner occupant duplex, that's totally kosher with the lender. And you don't have to like refinance under a new loan on the original place. Okay. Nope. It's, I mean, the one that I got is a 30 year fixed loan. That interest rate is locked in. They're not going to bump it up because now I've turned it into an investment property. So as long as I live there for a year and then go buy another one, you can get multiple owner occupant loans. But do you need to move to that new property? Yes. And there are people out there who will like, claim it's their primary residence and that is mortgage fraud you should not do that that's a key tip right there actually move if you're if you're getting that loan do not commit fraud <laughs> yeah that's, that's just a general tip for for life that's what something Kyle and i talk about is you know we're trying to do things that are right to advance us in our uh, careers but it's also avoiding those tail risks like accidentally committing mortgage fraud and getting like set back to zero for doing something terrible so that's major advice avoid the things that reset everything to you. Yeah. And that's like where I think we talked a little bit, you know, last time we talked about how important network is like, you need a good agent, you need a good lender that can tell you these things because otherwise you wouldn't know all of this stuff. So mm -hmm. having people that you can trust and trusted resources to tell you this stuff is how you learn that. How do you uh, quantify what a good agent is? Like wh what are the, what is the difference between a bad agent and a good agent to you? And let's contextualize this as agents for investors. It's interesting because real estate agents do a little bit of everything. There's like a little bit of law. You're filling out contracts. You need to know what they say. There's a little bit of design and just like, does this home have good resale value? Is it an awkward floor plan? Is the driveway really steep? It's a little bit of construction, knowing like quality materials, what's going to have high upkeep costs. It's a little bit of negotiation and kind of a lot. I mean, that's a big one. It's even a little bit of people skills. Like sometimes a deal can fall apart because your agent is just being a dick to the other agent and they don't like you now. So it's kind of a little bit of everything and it's hard to pinpoint just one of them. It's kind of a blend of all those things. I think where some investors get frustrated with their agent would be 
not being very good with math and just financial stuff, um, not being good at negotiating, and then just anything else that's going to cause a deal to fall apart or, you know, like if they misestimate after repair value of a flip, that mm-hmm. could be something that would be really bad for an agent, stuff like that, or for an investor. As an investor, though, how do I know or decide whether or not, like what signs should I look for in an agent that make me believe that they're good at negoti- negotiation law all these different prereq or all these different things that they need to be good at. Just call me. Just just give me a call. I'll be like, hey, talk to this guy. See if they're a good agent. I'll hook you up. We have agents all over the country. Uh, I'm half joking. Feel free to do that. But you know, to actually <laughs> make it scalable, I would say go with your gut. Have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Like just feel them out. Ask them some basic questions. Tell them what you're thinking, and uh, and just kind of you know see see how they feel. You can ask about their experience. You can ask, do they own investment properties? Like a lot of- That's a huge question. That's like top question. Yeah. It's just like, are they buying what they're selling? Are they buying their own product? Because if you're an agent and you're successful and you're making good money, I don't know why you wouldn't be parking at least some of that into real estate investments. Unless they're just living lavishly and spending every dollar they make. I agree with you. Yeah. And that would be one of the signs that you may, they might not be the right fit for you. (laughs) No, might be a good friend to party with though, but- That's true. But maybe at that party, there'd be a real estate agent that's more conservative. So I have a question about, you know, becoming an agent. And, you know, you said earlier in this conversation that, you know, since you're looking for a new way to make money is outside of the debate job. And you also wanted to learn about real estate. So you chose to become an agent to be, you know, a way to learn the business, but also as a way to make money to funnel into the business. But what advantages and disadvantages or under what circumstances would you recommend or recommend against becoming an agent if your goal is to get involved within real estate? Like what benefits does that bring you as an investor also being an agent? That's a great question. I don't think it's necessary at any point. I think there's a lot of people that have been really successful investing in real estate without becoming an agent. My friend Richie that I talked about, he's a good example because he's, he's a computer programmer. And I know a lot of people in the fire community are programmers. They're like very high salary, very smart. And you know, a lot of them invest in stocks, but he's just taking a similar approach, but investing in real estate. And so he's good with systems. He's good with numbers. He's been able to figure it out pretty easily of you know, how to be successful as an investor and as a landlord. So I don't think it's necessary at any point. I would recommend doing it if you want to be a full-time agent. Like I don't think doing it part-time is really worth it. It's a lot of time commitment and investment to learn how to be a good agent. And so if you're not going to do it full-time, I wouldn't do it at all. I actually have a family friend who their dad, he's like a jack of all trades, super successful, like amazing dude. And he just went ahead and got his license for fun. And he goes to sell his house and lo and behold, it sits on the market for six months and doesn't sell because he doesn't know how to take professional photos. He doesn't know how to price it accurately. He just doesn't exactly know what he's doing. So I don't think it's worth it to do part-time or just to like save on commissions for the deals that you're doing. Maybe if you're flipping and you're buying and selling like, you know, 10 plus transactions a year, then maybe it's worth it. But if you're doing rentals, if you're, you know, doing anything else, I generally wouldn't recommend it. I think that's a, a good way to characterize it. Cause for, for someone like me, who, you know, might try to make the majority of my money doing something in the computer space uh, and then being able to funnel that as a real estate investor. You know, it's not necessary to do that extra schooling, do those extra certifications when if you can just build a working relationship with someone who's good at real estate, you know, you're not really bringing yourself, you're not helping anyone by adding another thing to your skill set and trying to learn. Yeah, I'll add one thing to that to really hammer the point home because a lot of people don't realize this. When you buy a house, you do not pay your agent. The seller pays the agent's commission. So if you're an investor buying rental properties and you use an agent, that is not costing you a dime. And so there's almost no reason not to just use an agent. They're going to be way more knowledgeable than you for the things you need them for. And it's not costing you anything. Now, that's why I said with flipping, if you're selling a lot, sellers pay the commission. So that's where it might cost you a little bit more. But if you're buying rental properties, just find a good agent and there's very little downside. Yeah. So I have a follow-up question to that since it seems like the conclusion for someone in my position would not be to become an agent. What can a client do to be more helpful to their agent? To like be, have a better relationship and not be like annoying and a headache, but also like you'd want to send, like if you'd want to send me good deals because I'm a good client, you know, what do I, what kind of behaviors do I have? Awesome question. And I appreciate that you're even thinking that way because most people don't. Okay. it's a good step. (laughs) And so we have to deal with those people. No, Uh, the number one thing is loyalty. Real estate agents don't get paid until a deal closes. So I can sit there and give you free advice. I can help you find properties. I can drive you around. I can show you properties. I could even submit an offer. I could do all this stuff for you. And then all of a sudden at the last second, if you're like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you my brother-in-law is an agent. 
I'm going to make sure he gets paid on this deal. That is like, you're dead to me. I'm not wasting my time with you anymore. Like just be loyal to them and be upfront about that. And I think a lot of times this comes from naivety. I don't think it comes from a bad place. People just don't realize um, that they're like actually using someone for their knowledge and their expertise only to then kind of stab them in the back without even kind of realizing what they're doing. So number one is loyalty. Just be loyal to them. Just say up front, hey, here's my situation. I'm trying to get involved in real estate investing. I have a lot of questions. I understand that if you answer these questions, you're like taking you know, your time and I really appreciate that. And I want you to know that I'm gonna be loyal and I'll use you on my transactions going forward. So that's by far and away the biggest thing. One secondary thing I would say is do what you say you're gonna do. Like you mentioned wanting an agent to bring you deals. Most agents, or at least for me and some of the other ones I work with, we have a lot of investors. So if we have a deal, we're not gonna have a tough time selling that. If I bring you a deal and you're wishy-washy, you hem and haw, you tell me you want this and I bring it to you, but then you don't actually put an offer on it. I'm not gonna spend that much more time trying to bring you more deals when there's other people I could go to that I know are gonna actually get to the finish line. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that that's actually one of the best questions that we could have asked is like, how, how are we, how do we position ourselves to serve our age, our agents so that we get better and better information as time goes on? Cause you know, that's like kind of how real estate works is as you hit that finish line consecutively and consistently, you're getting better information, better deals, better this, better that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a snowball that rolls downhill. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And I'd say one other thing that just came to mind too, is bring them business. Like if you have friends, like recommend that realtor to them. Oh, this guy's mm-hmm. awesome. He does a great job. You should totally sit down and have a conversation with him. That's also like a big value add to whatever real estate agent you're working with. Absolutely. I think that's a value add to any, any business enterprises, bringing business, bring referrals. Like that's like one of the easiest ways to win someone over is like, you know, we had a podcast, someone we wanted to get on the show. He scheduled like a month out and we were excited for it and we put in all this work and then he canceled last minute. We're like, oh no. And he's like, here are two people I'm friends with that I'm going to reach out to on my behalf because they're in similar profiles to me and I want you to interview them because like, it's like he just went from like upsetting us to like providing more value than he took just because of like that referral business. So I think that's a great tip. Absolutely. For sure. So I guess one, one more question within real estate is like, what's your five-year goal? where do you want to go within this field that you kind of just started in or, or what do you see as your vision for, for where you're going as an agent or as an investor? Let's say both. Okay. As an agent, I would say my goal is more focused on three years. A lot of agents really hit their stride in the third year. Like the first year is largely build up second year. You start to like get some momentum and third year is where you can often like, you know, really start to grow. So I'd like to be making six figures by my third year and doing, you know, 25 plus, 30 plus deals, somewhere around that range. Five, 10 years, I might create an expansion team within Ben Kinney um, and kind of, you know, get more on the mentoring coaching side and bringing up new agents and building my own kind of team within the team. From an investing perspective, I want to, you know, like I said, next deal, I want to be a duplex or a fourplex. After that, another fourplex. After that, another fourplex. And tied to that is my, my first big financial goal is to create enough passive income from rental properties to cover my expenses so that I can retire if I want to, although more likely just grow my net worth. Yeah. Cause then once you reach that point, your next goal becomes increasing the comfort of that retirement, you know, survival versus like comfortable survival. Uh, I have one more question on real estate here that you kind of reminded me of just with something you said there. What do you have to say about, you know, if someone doesn't have the capital to take on like a big down payment and they want to get started in real estate with little capital, but they have like a partnership. So what do you think about like how, how joint ventures kind of work as an investor, like going halvesies on a property, especially if you're not going to live there with a family member or a friend. So like if Kyle and I wanted to do something, but neither of us had enough money individually, but combined we did, do you think that's a good idea? Or if you trust the partner, obviously, or do you think it's a better idea to just wait until you personally have it and then you can buy it and do what you want? Trust is huge. I have heard horror stories of like embezzlement and, you know, people stealing money. So that's huge. I'm going to borrow one from uh, bigger pockets here and say that only partner with someone if you're bringing different things to the table. So for example, if you have someone who has a bunch of money, but is super busy and needs a place to invest it. And you're someone who can go find a deal and be a landlord and like do the action, you know, actually manage the asset. 
that's that's a good match because you have money and you have someone that can do the work to invest it. As much as I hate to say it, and I don't know that much about like you and Kyle, but you guys probably wouldn't be the best partnership because you're bringing similar things to the table. Like you guys are young, you're hungry. This is something that Richie and I talk about because like we're good friends, we're doing this together. And so we're like, oh, that'd be awesome to partner. Like, wouldn't that be fun? But I don't know that we necessarily bring unique things to the table that make sense for us to partner. So as of now, we've just kind of done our own thing, but we're always like bouncing ideas off each other and like mm-hmm. consulting with each other and going through the journey together. And you like share deals that. between each other. And yeah, the first time Lewis and I ever like had a meal together, just the two of us, I told him that I never wanted to do business with him. And then, you know, a, a year later, we, we partnered on a lot of different things. So I, I definitely hear where you're coming from for sure. Um, I'm just going to go have to learn something different and so are you so we can change his mind or not change exactly. his mind, but meet the framework. I will say that the difference between Kyle and I is that Kyle knows a lot about real estate and I don't. So that's, that's value for sure on his side. I don't know what I bring to the table. We'll figure that out. Yeah. I think the triangle that they often talk about is time, money, and effort. No. What is it? No, it's money, expertise, and effort, mm. right? So like if you have someone who knows a lot about investing and they have the time to invest, they know a lot about investing and they have time to spend on it. They just need capital. Go find a partner that can give you money, right? So yeah, I I think that's, I like that framework a lot, money, expertise, and effort. And again, it's one of those things that I think transcends real estate as a generally good framework for like forming a partnership. Someone's got capital, someone can do the work, someone's really knowledgeable. And if you combine all that. So I think that now we can uh, transition into what we call our our bonus round, just some, some shorter kind of off topic questions. So my first one is, how do you like living in Atlanta? And have you lived there your whole life? That's one question. Oh yeah, you said Chattahoochee High School, right? I moved down uh, from Virginia when I was six, outside of a little time here, a little time there, have been in the state my whole life. But have you been in Atlanta? Pretty much, Metro Atlanta. Um, Okay. It's kind of, it's tough to like delineate what the city is. It just Mm kind of keeps sprawling out and out. All right, next question here. (laughs) Kyle's laughing at himself there. so this is something I wanted to ask back when you were talking about weight loss, because clearly from what I can tell from Zoom, you've been successful at keeping the weight off. Are you still tracking macros or calories? What have you still done? Because I know a lot of people go super intense on the weight loss. They get into ketosis for two weeks. They lose a hundred pounds in like a snap of a finger and then they go gain it all right back. So what have you done to keep the weight off? What habits? Yes, I still track. And this, this is why it's so powerful because, and you know, whatever diet works for you, go for it. But my philosophy, my experience is when you cut out certain food groups, if you're on a low carb diet, the second you eat carbs, it comes back. When you say, I, I can't have pizza, the second you eat pizza, it comes back. Or you just like try to never eat pizza for the rest of your life. And that doesn't sound very fun. But I've been able to track my calories for like three years now and the weight has stayed off. So it's sustainable. You know, I can like keep doing that forever and I probably will. Um, in addition, I still do challenges. They're not as much as bets anymore. But mm-hmm. like, for example, Richie and I at the beginning of the year said that we were going to run a half marathon over the summer. And so it got canceled, but we still did it anyway. And that was huge. because Just I was outside like, on your own? Yep. We just like went on a trail and did it just the two of us. But I was like, I committed to that. I'm going to stick to that. Our next challenge is we're going to do a CrossFit workout called the Murph. So we just have these like challenges that we work towards. And, and that for me just really keeps me accountable because in my mind, I'm like, all right, that date is coming. Time is passing. I need to keep working towards that. And so I work out like five days a week. Uh, do you have a goal Murph time? Not really. I just want to finish it. Um, okay. We're going to do an unweighted one in September yeah. and then with the weighted vest in December. So I think okay. uh, like an hour, I think, well, like 45 minutes is a pretty good time, right? I don't, I don't know the difference in times. The best I've ever seen at my home CrossFit gym was 36. And that dude was like a freak beast. Shout out Chris Mick. If you're listening, that dude was a monster. He got like a jump rope Instagram, like most fit dude I've ever seen in person in my entire life. Like a 36 minute Murph is incredible. With a weight uh, vest on, right? Legit. Yeah. RX as written, but that's, yeah, that'd be a good challenge, Kyle as Murph as a benchmark workout. Our, now the other question on the Murph. I got to get to two pull-ups before we can do that. That's Dude, true. Pull-ups for me. That's the one. I, I can do everything else fine right now, but I'm worried about the pull-ups. That's, yeah. that's my other question on the Murph. Are you doing the 100, 200, 300, or are you doing 10, 20, 30, 20 times, or whatever it is? I'm not sure. I, I think Richie's plan is to do all 100 pull-ups, then okay. all 200 I might do 10. That makes it substantially harder. Does it? Okay. It is, but I think RX is 100, 200, 300, so... I don't, I don't know. I have to read the CrossFit literature to decide if it counts as a proper Murph if you sequence it. 
We're trying to do it proper. So I don't know. I, I would research that on your end to make sure you're living up to your own standards. Cause I've only ever done a cycled Murph and I only did half reps. How like, do you track your calories? Yeah. You do it with just the, like my fitness tracker, my, my fitness pal. I started with that. I mean, I think it works really well. The most annoying part for me about tracking calories is having to look it up every single time. Oh, I ate a Twinkie. How many calories is that? Oh, I ate six Cheez-Its. It's really annoying. But the mm-hmm. cool thing is most people eat a lot of the same foods pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And so once you do that after a while, you kind of intuitively know. So yeah. now I've gotten to the point where I use a spreadsheet because I don't know, I just like spreadsheets uh, and it's always estimated. It's never exact, but I just have like a pretty good idea. And as long as it's in the ballpark, it tends to, you know, balance out in the end. I would be embarrassed to show my MyFitnessPal from the spring. In the month of February, there are 40 gallons of milk consumed. So... <laughs> Yeah, Lewis gained, yeah, Lewis gained 20 pounds over the course of two months, right, Lewis, or six weeks? Yeah, I gained, uh, this year I've gained and lost 30 pounds, basically, 27 pounds, up and down, which is so pretty fun. a swing of over 50? Yeah, definitely over 50 on the swing. I flew out to school under 150, flew home for spring break, 177, now I'm back to 150. The 177, I think it's a better 150, though. I think proportionally it's, like, better. I just wanted to bulk, and I went all in and same thing. This is something Kyle and I talked about in our semester and review of three lessons we each learned from this past semester. Uh, and my big one was like count calories was one of my three lessons. Like for me, you know, always naturally skinny person. So if I don't track calories, I'll eat much less than I need to. Uh, and that's why I was always skinny. And so it wasn't until, okay, I've budgeted three. It's not budgeting. It's the opposite of budgeting, but it's a 3000. If I don't hit 3000 today, like it's a failed day. And that was my, you know, that's the same kind of mentality I said on the challenges earlier is like, it's that singular focused goal where even if I had a lazy day and I didn't do any schoolwork, as long as I hit 3000 calories that day. And at one point it got up to 3,700 and I was feeling like absolute garbage. But as long as I hit that, it doesn't matter how unproductive I was. Like I was, I made this most important step to what was at the time my most important goal. So was it like pretty a clean 3,700 or you like throw some Zaxby's in there? Uh, so I've never had Zaxby's. It was actually a pescatarian bulk. So wow, uh, that's there's... like a, a lot of volume to eat that much. It was, but that's where the milk came in. It was his full time job. That was, really that's was. where the milk came in. Kyle and I would get dinner with like a dinner group, and we showed up to the first one. I got like a cheese pizza. I ate the whole thing. We were like 15 minutes in the conversation, like be right back. And I got another cheese pizza and ate the whole thing. And these guys, this is like the first time we got dinner with this group. And I, I'm really king of first impressions is what I'm trying to say. I mean, that's yeah. pretty dope. But Wait, yeah, so it was clean. Besides I'm, the 10 uh, cups of milk every day, it was clean. I'm running the numbers back now in my head. Did you say you had 40 gallons of milk in a month? No, no. Like I said that it was two months. Okay. Uh, I was going to be like, that's more than one a day. And I feel yeah, like it was not more than one a day. It was like three yeah. quarters of one a day. I had a, a running tally on my whiteboard every gallon. I was like, check. Yeah. Lewis has notoriously low standards. Of- yeah. I made yesterday like a pound of beef liver in one sitting, just like <laughs> cooked horribly. I mean, that's one of my most impressive feats today, honestly, is like in terms of food, I was able to, to house without like, I've transcended taste. That's my goal. I've moved beyond it. Transcended taste. Well, then yeah. you just um, eat like chicken breast, broccoli, and white rice, right? That's too easy. <laughs> I got, uh, we've got one That'd last work question. Too well. That'd work too well. That'd work too well. One last question here. Ooh. Are there any quotes or heuristics that you come back to, you know, throughout your, your weight loss, your, your obsession with growth now, your real estate career, you know, whatever piece of life that you come back to that, that centers you or, or, or pushes you or, or whatever? There's quite a few. I'm a fan of like, you know, cliches, if they have substance to them and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I want to take a second to recommend a book to everyone. If you okay. read one book in the rest of your life, this is the one book I would recommend. and I will stand by this. And that is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And I especially recommend the audiobook because the audiobook it brings the stories to life and they actually take a break between each chapter to talk to David and have him like expand on the stories and whatnot. Yeah. It is so inspirational, motivational, educational. It's so, so, so good. And there's a lot of concepts that come out of that that are so valuable. And if I can point to one that I, that comes up all the time, especially when I'm working out is the 40% rule. And so the 40% rule for him is when your brain starts telling you that it's time to quit, you're at about 40% of your capacity. And so everyone hits that moment in a workout where you're like, I'm tired. This has not, this, this has ceased being fun. I don't really want to do this anymore. 
you're only just starting to hit the wall and you can push so much past that. And it comes up in work. It comes up in so many different things. So that's one that comes up a lot, but I would just say like that book in general keeps me fueled, keeps me going and yeah. just like informs a lot of my life philosophy. I've, I've listened to it twice straight through. I can't, I just completely double everything you say, like not double, like double support, like agree hundred percent. Now, Richie might not like me, your friend that you do challenges with, but if you two talked about the four, four, 48, it sounds familiar. What is that? So, <laughs> oh, wait, is this the donuts and no, Lewis, no. we got We got to do that. Lewis. Oh, we'll get Elijah is on board for sure to redo it. Uh, uh, Elijah. Ugh. But Kyle's afraid of Elijah because Elijah's a <laughs> so monster. Afraid of Elijah. He's he's so good at working out. <laughs> but he's training for a marathon, so he can do it. But four four forty eight is a challenge. I'm gonna a credit to David Goggins, where you do four miles every four hours for forty eight hours. So it's a two day ultra marathon. Start whenever I think you start at midnight potentially. Run four miles, take a two hour nap, wake up at four, run four miles, take another little sleep. Eight a.m. twelve. Four, eight, twelve, four, eight, twelve, four, eight, twelve. Four. So it's twelve four mile runs in a forty-eight period, forty-eight hour period. Uh, yeah, that sounds awful. I've attempted it. We made it seven runs. So I technically have done a marathon informally in twenty-five hours, but which is not a great marathon time. But that's that's a challenge to add to the books for sure. And I do need I like to claim it. I do need to claim. If you're a fan of David Goggins. You've got a you've got a pony up for that one. Another lesson from that book would be stretch your psoas muscle or your hip flexor for sure. Make sure you do that. Yeah, I like tried to look up his stretching routine. I guess mild spoiler, but this is one of the least important parts of the book. But when he talks about like that stretching routine that he does at mm -hmm. the end, I tried to like look it up, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, yeah same. I, I heard a story about him. It was him and Cameron Haynes. And Cameron Haynes, for people who don't know, he runs a, a marathon a day. He's just an absolutely insane human being. But so they did like a it was like a 30 mile run and then they did a just like just like a beast workout in the gym like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps just unbelievable and then he stretched for like three hours after and then woke up the next morning and ran 12 miles so i'm looking at my to-do list now yeah lewis go ahead uh <laughs> sorry it might be connection that i just jumped in i'm looking at my to-do list and i'm seeing uh so i think i'm going to try to listen to the rest of the burr book by refinance rehab repeat from bigger pockets i got the order wrong re-listen to can't hurt me and also start listening to an audiobook about dog training because i'm gonna buy a dog if i can find a way to listen to all three of those at once i'll let y'all know but that's kind of where this conversation's left me which is a good place always glad to revisit david goggins yeah i'll say a couple of the things real quick if you guys like david goggins i also recommend living with a seal that's jesse itzler jesse itzler yeah he's awesome yeah. see it was those two that did the four four forty eight together um, oh okay or something yeah, yeah. like that or that's where it originated when he was living jesse with itzler's him. a billionaire that's so sick <laughs> yeah, i will say like that that book i i empathize with david because it kind of paints him as like a little bit crazy it's way more comedic like it's really funny but mm -hmm. still still found it interesting especially if you listen to can't hurt me first have I, you heard of living with a monk i heard of that but i have not read or listened to it yet uh-huh okay and the one other thing i was going to say is like I, I recommend taking your dog to obedience classes i don't know that worked really well for me but just having like a, where just like petco or yeah that's smart petco yeah okay not 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 do the diy so you do that and then they t also teach you what to do honestly it's more training you than training your dog because they'll be like all right this is what you need to do when your dog is doing this okay i'm down i'm buying a dog and i'm gonna he's my protege add it to your to-do list list oh dog is on there in all caps which is a very <laughs> not like next action based to do it's the word dog that's kind of a bigger project than it. you don't really knock it off as a task but yeah, that's yeah very, very high ROI on uh, life enjoyment with the dog. That's totally what, that's, that's what I'm saying. So when you all see the podcast in a few weeks where Kyle and I bring on a pro dog trainer to ask him the ins and outs of dog training, <laughs> you'll know where the seed was born. Exactly. The reasons for the podcast. Guy, like, uh, Caesar? Daniel Caesar or Chaser. Caesar. Yeah, it's Caesar something. He's a dog whisperer. But anyways, Mike, very much appreciate you coming on. You're crushing it. You're going to crush it. Keep being obsessed with growth never go backwards keep going up we believe in you thank you for for coming on this podcast and, and talking to us about real estate and your debate career your life losing all that weight we appreciate it and have a great day
Of course. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoy it. I love, you know, every conversation we've had so far has been a ton of fun. Love talking about real estate. And I think you guys are totally crushing it too. Like, I don't know why I wasn't doing this stuff when I was 20. Like what else you got going on? You know, I love that you guys are educating yourselves, have a podcast, trying to create this fund at the university to do real estate investing. I'm all about it. And uh, I can't wait to see where it goes. I'm excited for you guys. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our interview with Mike Lacey. It was really interesting to hear about his transition from debate to real estate, how he got his first deal together, how he learned about real estate through podcasts, how his friend influenced him in such a positive way. Lewis, what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I really enjoyed talking to him. He seemed very similar to us in a lot of ways, the way he thinks about always challenging himself and always putting a way to put skin in the game on his personal development goals. Just overall, good guy to know, and I'm glad we were able to make friends with him through doing this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. If you did, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Leave a comment on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on all those platforms. And we'll be back in about a week with the next episode. Thank you all so much for listening.